Hey, folks, welcome to the Battles of the First World War podcast. Um, if you've watched the discussion episodes, you'll usually see a portion of my library behind me. So absolutely no one should be surprised when I say that I love books. Uh, I also love um, acquiring them. So in 2019, I bought a book named The Hello Girls, America's First Women Soldiers, in the hope of someday doing an episode on the women subjects of that book. So while the world can be grim and dark, it can also shine with light. And this is something that I really believe. Um, and this afternoon is um, one of those days of light because we will be able to speak with the very author of that book, Dr. Elizabeth Cobbs. And I'm so very excited. Me and too. So happy, Mike, thank you. Yeah, thank thank you for coming on. And um, you know, I, I just got compared to Matt Damon, so that's that's like afternoon is a win win. So, <laughs> but moving on, uh, Dr. Elizabeth Cobbs is a historian, novelist, and documentary filmmaker. Author of nine books, she has served on jury for the Pulitzer Prize in History and the Historical Advisory Committee of the U.S. State Department. She has written for the New York Times, Financial Times, and Washington Post. Stanford PhD, Cobbs is the Emerita Melbourne Glasscock Chair at Texas A&M. In 2020, the U.S. Army Signal Corps Association named her Brevet Colonel for unearthing the story of the Hello Girls, America's first women soldiers, published by Harvard and subsequently made into an off-Broadway musical, children's book, and documentary film. At age 23, Cobbs won the Rockefeller Youth Award for a significant contribution to the well-being of mankind. So one more time, Dr. Cobbs, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Mike. And I have to, since you referred to it, I'm going to tell your viewers that I was the one who compared you with Matt Damon. I'd never seen you before. And just 3,000 miles away, you know, meeting you, it's it's lovely. So anyhow, uh, thank you so much for, for inviting me. I am so honored. This is this is not my story. This is their story. So I'm so honored to tell it. Yeah, it's it's um it's amazing. Um, so on the the podcast, when I do the narrative episodes for the last five years, I've been working on the Merzargon uh, campaign, and it's funny in the the book that I use as the background, um, as the the backbone rather for that whole series. Like, I don't believe it makes any mention of the Hello Girls. Um, no fault of the author. I, I'm I'm. I'm going to take it that way. Just like, you know, there's probably, there's a lot to report, but it's a, it's a huge aspect of the story that's missing. So I'm so glad. Um, I, I bought the book, as I said, like hoping to get to it one day, but like so much better that we can now sit here and, and talk about it, you know, like, um, so I'm just going to dive right into the questions. Uh, so Dr. Cobbs, you've written a variety of books, both history and fiction. Um, like I said, I've seen your, Senior Hamilton Affair novel before, and I didn't realize it was you, so I'm going to pick that up here pretty soon. Um, so for the Hello Girls, like, what drove you to tell their story, the story of these women uh, soldiers in World War I? Well, here's uh, kind of the crazy thing. Um, and, Mike, and in a way, we're discovering this together, you and I and all your listeners it's this, you know, I was looking for a topic. I've written a lot on U.S. foreign relations, you know, mm -hmm. study of war. Uh, that's most of my books have been on that subject. And we were coming up on the centennial of World War One. 
So I went to many of the usual topics, which I think are still not even, you know, we still are trying to understand. And then I got, I stumbled across this story about some women in World War I. And I think the funny thing is, by the way, you mentioned that I sat on the Pulitzer Committee once and the jury. And that experience led me to realize that in 100 and almost 110 years now, the Pulitzer Prize for American history has gone only one time to a book that featured the history of women. One time. And that was a book on midwifery. So, you know. Okay. Reproduction. And right. and so this is in a way I'm I'm kind of I'm being professorial here. I'm kind of going sideways to answer your question, but it's this funny thing. I think deep in our bones, most people have the sense of, well, it didn't no book on women has ever won the prize because women were not that consequential. You don't have to know the story of women to tell the story of American history, to tell the story of World War One. Like you said, you're you know, you're you know, your main book there doesn't mention them. And so I think that in our own bones, I mean, all of us are part of this, you know, worldview. There's this sort of idea that if you if you took women out of all history, which basically that's what historians have done almost since time immemorial, if you take all of the women out, that's okay because the only really, really, really important thing that women ever did was reproduction, was to bring to life, the next generation, you know, cook dinner, etc. And that if women just kept showing up doing that, well, then, you know, everything else went along, you know, more or less tickety-boo, just aside from a few world wars. Right. And so I myself, you know, I was thinking like, oh, let me write another book on Woodrow Wilson, because I think that man is still misunderstood. And then I came across a story about these women, and I have a very close friend who's, who is a winner of the Pulitzer Prize, and I was telling my friend, you know, I think... I know. I think there's this crazy, interesting story about women in World War One, and these were actually the first American women soldiers in uniform. Now, they weren't. I mean, they weren't people like the Revolutionary War or Civil War who were like pretending to be men. Right. No, these were these were women. <laughs> right. And so my friend said to me, "Well, how could you get a whole book out of that?" And you know, he's. Wonderful historian, a you know, expert, and a winner of the Pulitzer Prize. So, you know, I thought maybe he's right. And then, as you know, Mike, once you start, once I start anyway, to learn the story of these women, I thought to myself, how can we tell the story of why the U.S. helped the Allies win World War One, unless we know literally the communication system? that they had to rely upon, stretched over hundreds of miles. If we don't understand how that worked, how, how can we explain their victory? And we can't. But that's what we've always thought we could. Wow, fascinating. Yeah, amazing. And, and, like, and now your, your journey of like taking on the story of the Hello Girls, like you now need to understand the, the development of the telephone and everything. I mean, I, I had never heard the term PBX, private bank exchange was it is that oh now you're now a, P, a pbx i'm now PBX. forgetting what this, but PBX. yeah pbx private yeah. my god i know mike <laughs> i was like at telephone museums i went to at&t archives you know two parts of the country I, you know I, I was at stanford at the time at, at hoover institution they actually had an old-fashioned phone thing i'm like oh this is like so cool unfortunately 
not wanting to like kill my readers, I did take out big chunks of that technology picture. I mean, I left a lot in, but uh, it is fascinating. Like today, you know, in a nanosecond, we all can call around the world. And in that day, every single, every single phone call was literally physically connected by a living person. And almost always it was female. Almost always it was a woman. So in the case of World War I, women did this so much faster than the men they trained. We don't need to understand why, or maybe we can't even understand why. But women could make, could connect, men could connect calls about one call per minute. Now that sounds slow, but it, there's a lot to it actually. You know, you're switching wires, you're talking through your headphones, you might be speaking in French and in English at the same time to different people, you have to make notes. Anyway, the guys could do it in about one call per minute. The women could connect five calls per minute. Now, by the way, almost every command that went from General Pershing on down the line in World War I was delivered by a phone call to the trenches. So if you say women can do, you know, five in an hour and guys can do one an hour, that means that if women hadn't been there, 80% of operational calls would have been delayed. 80 percent yep and that could have had fire, fire retreat duck <laughs> get out yeah. of the way All yes the yeah exactly exactly wow so to set the stage for all of this um the world war one years approached uh the culmination of the women's suffrage movement um but that was unknown at the time so to to quote from your book the primordial argument against giving women the vote uh uh, would excuse me, the primordial argument against giving women the vote would not represent physical force. Enfranchising voters who had no capacity to defend the state endangered it. For, quote, it is by physical force alone and by prestige, which represents physical force in the background, that a nation protects itself against foreign interference and enforces its own laws, end quote. Women were thus a lesser class of Americans. They couldn't be soldiers, and by law, they were an extension of their husbands and fathers under the rule of femme couvert. Married women had no legal identity separate from their male protectors. Even their nationality wasn't all their own. They inherited their fathers at birth and acquired their husbands upon marriage. Up through the 1950s, American-born brides Risked, the, risked their citizenship if they wed a foreigner. Some were declared aliens against their wishes. This is um, this this part was was new new to me. I, I had never heard of that. Um, so, what was U.S. future U.S. President Woodrow Wilson's stance on women's right to vote at this time, like before the United States had entered World War One? You know, Mike, you start out by saying there are, there are many moments of brightness. There's so much sunshine out there, and yet we hear all the time about the darkness. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that we often don't appreciate, we just don't know. We just, we can't appreciate something you don't know about, right? Yep. So we don't understand exactly how far we have all come. We stand in such a bright light, most of us, even if we think that there are dark clouds overhead, and there are some, but... 
mostly were in bright light. So yes, you're right. Women, uh, if you got married to a foreigner, you lost your citizenship. You were no longer an American citizen under American law. And that began to change. And and so one of the things that I looked at in that book and also an even more recent book that I wrote, um, which is really kind of like, what's the ladder of liberty for women? Which, by the way, helps men too. Um, mm-hmm. What's the ladder of liberty? And certainly the vote was one of those important rungs on the ladder. And so here's the funny thing. Okay, why is voting connected to serving in the military? That's a connection that goes back to our Revolutionary War. Mm-hmm. When our country was first looking at, well, who gets to vote? Let's say we're going to now have a representative democracy. So in the past, only men of a significant property could have a vote. So now are you going to let men who like, you know, have 25 cents in your pocket vote, you know, or do they have to own a big farm? And the argument that was made is, well, these are guys who picked up muskets at Lexington and Concord. They earned the right. And so that was a big part of that debate. Similarly, after the Civil War, should black men be allowed to vote? Well, they served with distinction. I mean, extraordinarily in, um, you know, I think we're called the U.S. Colored Troops. I can't remember the exact name right now. But And so one of the arguments for the 15th Amendment is, well, these people picked up a gun. Similarly, you know, some uh, listeners are going to be old enough to remember that uh, young people, young men and women got the vote under the age of 21 during the Vietnam War, because the argument there and the amendment that was passed argued basically, well, if you're going to draft somebody and they have to risk their life, shouldn't they be able to vote? Powerful argument. And that's what happened in World War I, too. And it didn't happen here first, by the way. I think a lot of Americans would be super surprised to realize that we were one of the last countries, major countries, big countries, to give women the vote. Now, the irony of that is that we all think, oh, wait a minute, about Susan B. Anthony. We were the first place where the demand was made. But 20 other countries rose to that you know, request before we did. And it really happened partly because we saw what the British were doing. In fact, in World War One, both our enemies and our allies gave women the vote ahead of the U.S. Wow. And Woodrow Wilson was embarrassed by the end. And he even said, and we don't know which particular women he was referring to, but certainly the hello girls were in this group. He said, women have served on the skirts of the battle. Skirts of the battle. And who are we to say that that does not entitle them to the rights of the citizenship? So, yeah, right after the war, those arguments, it wasn't until the war was over, mm-hmm. you know, well over, that women finally got the vote. But, in, but right in connection with that, that same period of time. Right, right. Wow. Gosh, this so, so much. Like, so um, how did uh, telephone companies and women come together to meet the needs of the nascent uh, American Expeditionary Force. So, you know, we're transitioning into wartime now. Um, and yeah, and, and communications are, are huge, just as you mentioned. Um, so telephone companies and women, I, and you, you mentioned it a few minutes ago, but if you have more you'd like to add, this is, this is perfect. <laughs> you know, uh, my, my, one of my aunt, who's now deceased, was a telephone operator when she was a young woman. Really? My grandparents were really worried because, first of all, she was five foot six, And the understanding was that a tall woman, a woman as tall as five foot six, would have a hard time getting a husband. She also, (laughs) and and she also um, 
you know, she went to college for one year and then dropped out and went to work for the telephone company um, and, you know, was an operator, you know, changing things by hand. And I, you know, I, as I was writing this book, I really came to appreciate, wow, my aunt worked for AT&T. What was that like? And I think the, one of the tremendous things, Mike, and this is a part of our bigger American story that you can't tell without putting women in, even though we somehow thought you could, um, AT&T, this was a period of time when there was no U.S. standing army, what historians call a standing army, meaning a really large professional force that's there all the time, like we have today and like we've had since World War II. Right. So it would always be a kind of like we're ginning it up for the occasion. You know, it's like, hey, guess what? we got a problem here. Let's make an army. So then they would have to do that every time. World War One. The way that that happened, because they had to have mobilization, had to be so fast, because the war had already been going on for you know three years in Europe, basically. Um, so they went to private companies, and private companies, uh, a number of them, worked hand in glove. They actually put the head of AT&T, for example, in army uniform. The, the chief executive, GE, became a reserve officer. Um, and so under, in a way, under command, and that was a way of uh, doing what the U.S. government could not do so quickly, which is to create a whole system of mass communications under their co- control. And so AT&T was wonderful, and they worked with the women. And by the way, today, Mike, today, if you go to the Women's Memorial at Arlington Cemetery, mm-hmm. one of the first things you'll notice is that it's sponsored by AT&T. AT&T was the primary contributor. Why? You know, I don't know all the history, but I do know that it was AT&T working with women that that provided this service um, to the United States government in World War One. Oh, that is that is too cool, because um, next month I will be down in um, in Alexandria, Virginia. So I, I and I plan on going to the, uh, the National Cemetery. So I'm definitely going to go going to go check that out. <laughs> but don't, don't risk the whole building, which is for women. It's not I mean, it's right there, but it would be easy, of course, to. You know, rush off to see the tomb of the unknown soldier or something. It's a wonderful building. Oh, fantastic! Um, so, how did the how did the army advertise the the job of needing operators? Um, what did they promise? And um, what about those offered contracts <laughs> to to women operators? Well, here's the weird thing. I mean, uh, you know, because you read the book, but our listeners don't. Women had this very weird experience. They were recruited to be soldiers. They were in the newspapers. Basically, one guy working in D.C. got the order from Pershing from France, and this guy goes, okay, let me go. So he puts out press releases to all the major newspapers. You can find them. If you want to do it, You know, go back and look at those. They're just so fun. And all, you know, from San Diego up to Maine, you know, from Florida up to Anchorage, and also, by the way, French Canada, because – these operators needed to be able to speak French. So they actually recruited some operators who were French Canadian or who were Massachusetts residents, French Canadian overlap. So anyway, so they put out this very, very wide call. They were told, you know, your contribution is is as important as any man, you know, you know, climbing, going up, you know, going over the barriers, you know, over there, um, you know, climb, you know, climbing out of the trenches and going over the top, as they said. Right. And so uh, they were said, you know, this is not going to be easy. You're going to have to wear uniforms. This is dangerous. Um, but patriotic women are who have these skills or at least the aptitude are, are really welcome. And they got 7,600 applicants 
within the first month or week. I can't remember the exact amount of time. So it was just tremendous. And I think one thing to remember is that all, you know, about half of the men who served, Americans who served in World War I, were volunteers. All of the women were. 100% of the women. Wow, fantastic. Wow. Um, and so what... Uh, so you stated that the army said, Hey, it's, it's going to be a tough job. You know, you're going to have to be in uniform and everything. Um, and they said, you know, and you'll be under, under contract, I believe. Um, what about those contracts? <laughs> they actually, they did not. I mean, I, it's an understandable confusion. A lot of people were confused at the time. Actually, the army said nothing to that effect. The army oh. just said, apply, uh, once you apply, we'll, we will interview you. You will be placed under Army oath, which, you know, I know you served and, and that's your contract in a sense. You you take this oath, especially in that era. There's not like lots of forms to fill out, although the women did fill out forms, of course, and applied and, and they were given the oath and it was sworn and in their personnel, you know, files, there are the copies, witnessed copies of their Army oath of office or, you know, service oath. And um, and that's all they were told. Um, and then when they got over there, they their IDs, um, it said in some place civilian, but it was a little confusing because they had been, you know, these were civilian workers, but they weren't because they were in uniform. You know, there were dog tags. They were told, you may never take off your uniform. I mean, I've not been in the service, so I don't quite know how this works, but I think it's interesting. You are on duty. 24 hours a day, as in this case, because they're in combat zones. Right. Um, and unless you are in bed with the covers up to your neck, you may not take off your uniform. And you must wear your dog tags 24-7 because if you're bombed or killed. And by the way, there were British women searching a sol- serving as soldiers, some of whom were bombed and killed. And how do you identify the remains is from their dog tags. Right. So that's that's how the women understood it, because they were told many, many times, you're in the army now. They were taught to salute, you know, to to drill. Um, they were, you know, many of them had been some of them. Some of them were sisters. And and women speaking of women, women couldn't join unless they had permission from their parents, even if they were unless they were if they were unwed. So if you were a 30 year old, you had to get permission from your parents. Or if you were married, then you could get your husband's permission. So this idea that women are free agents is not is not there yet in American history. That comes later in the later 20th century. So um, so you know they they did all that and they assumed that they were full soldiers because they were told once they were in you know some of them wanted to leave early or leave right after the armistice and they said oh no you're in the army you'll go home and we tell you. So there's not like a volunteer ambulance driver who says, okay, bye, fella. See you later, alligator. You're in the army now. So they did not know that. But when they got home, they were then told, oh, actually, you were never in the army. You were never in the army. You were a contract worker. And and they said, but wait, we never signed any contracts. There weren't weren't any contracts. And they're like, that doesn't matter. And so the dog tags... You know, the military burials, two of them died over there and they were given full military burials and then later said, oh, uh, mistake. Yes. And that's that's why I wanted to uh, to bring that up, like for our listeners to to hear. And and of course, it goes goes deeper in, in the book. Um, uh, and we'll and we'll get to, to more of that. Um, so who were some of the women who signed up? You've already uh, alluded to some. Um, 
who were some of the women who signed up for the switchboard operator job? Uh, the the hello girls. And very specifically, could you tell us about Grace Banker? <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, you know how it is. I'm like I'm, I'm from a big family. Maybe you know. Maybe you are. Maybe you aren't. But when you come from a big family, you kind of want to tell people about all the fun characters. You know, and there's just so <laughs> many crazy characters. Crazy Uncle Bob and yep. your sister Janet, who's just a kill. So I won't do that because otherwise we'll be here all day. Um, but they were, you know, a very diverse group of people. They were all white. I'm going to make that clear. They, I mean, this is a period of time when the army is segregated. I mean, very right. so, seriously. So, um, and it was, it was a small group and they, you know, they didn't need <laughs> this broader group of women. And of course, as the army's needs changed, ultimately would become more inclusive. Thank goodness. But this is World War One. Actually, they were being quite unusually inclusive in that A, women were allowed at all. And B, that they allowed immigrants. Because over the telephone, AT&T had always discriminated since its founding 50 years earlier against uh, female operators, any operator with anything like an accent. Because they wanted the listener, you know, the caller to understand perfectly everything that was being said. So uh, the operators were chosen for their diction, for their unaccented American, you know, methods of speaking, whatever. So this time, however, they had to use a lot of French Americans. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, roll with that, fellas. So um, they were, it was very diverse. And Grace Banker, however, was the, was the leader of the first contingent of women who went over ultimately five or six contingents made it to France and began working before the war ended rather unexpectedly. I know in, in November of 1918, the projection was, is that it would probably go another year. Similarly, by the way, to projections in world war two that, you know, that they expected to invade home islands of Japan, for example, in world right. war two. And they thought that would extend the war by a long, long shot. So in this case, um, Grace led the first one, and she was just, um, she was a, a French and history major. <laughs> I found this out when I researched her. I'm like, how did this woman know French? Because she was, you know, she wasn't French-American family, you know, who knows, but had been here a long time. And she was, you know, as 24-year-old woman, something like that, 24, 25. And she applied one week, you know, I saw your advertisement uh, in the New York Daily. Um, I'd like to apply. She doesn't hear answer back for a week or two. And she's like, well, gosh. So she writes again and, and she immediately gets an answer and says, oh yes, no, we're recruiting you and you will be leading the first contingent. Come in and get your vaccination shots. Wow. So, by the way, vaccinations were a lot less safe than they, of course they are very safe today, but right. uh, so, I mean, then it was all live viruses and some people end up with pretty, pretty sick. So, uh, they see one reason for grace is that she was a college graduate. So they had no, um, they had, you know, this is the first time they had any women as, you know, rank and file, but they needed women to offer officer them as well. And so someone like grace banker, who was one of the first to apply college graduate, they said, absolutely. Yes. Come on in and we'll fit you out for the uniform. So she, um, she became just, radically unexpectedly to her, uh, the leader of this first contingent. And she just, she wrote in a diary with that I found, I mean, this was the great charm for me, Mike, of this story is that because women's participation was 
valued highly then. At the time, everybody saw it and they valued it highly. But it's like footprints in the sand when you're walking along the beach. A minute and a half later, it gets erased. Right. So I did find her diary and she said, I suddenly realized what a huge weight I have on my shoulders. And she, she writes this as she's sailing out of New York Harbor and seeing the Statue of Liberty for the last time and realizing that she has to get 33 women to France alive, if possible, crossing the Atlantic, which is, you know, teeming with German subs and get them back and do this job that no woman has ever done before and prove to women and prove to men that women's contributions are absolutely consequential. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Yeah. And, and it makes me think, I was, I was thinking of, um, gosh, I, I was thinking of, of General Pershing and the AEF. This was the first time we'd sent such a large military force overseas. But I, I, even before that, I, I actually thought of like, um, gosh, I, I was thinking of comparing Grace Banker to uh like kind of like George Washington, like like we've never done this before, and we're building this thing from scratch, and we have to do it right because, yeah, like like George Washington was showing what Americans could do with their representative democracy. Yeah, you, you know Grace Banker, like yeah, we have to show our country like that. You know, we as women matter, and that you know our contribution is is important, just as important as these guys. So yeah, and and a funny thing, I think I love how you said that, Mike. It's it's not a vanity project. It's not like, hey, look at me, you know, I'm just as important as you. It's more that these are some things that these women burned to do because they knew how useful it could be. And Pershing knew. <laughs> Pershing has this funny moment where he gets to France and he realizes he can't complete a doggone phone call because because the you know the GIs, they're not GIs then, the Doughboys, like they know, and they even the by the way, the Doughboys thought it was girl work. They're like, well, you want me to put on a skirt too? You know, one guy right. said, you right. know, like I can wear a skirt if you need me to, but that's kind of weird because it was a kind of a sex segregated occupation. So it's not that the women just want to be counted. They want to count. Right. Want to count. And you know, this is a person who has served, you know, or, or educators or, you know, teachers, people, nurses and doctors, people who serve, they don't want to just be counted. They want to count. And these women knew that they could. And, of course, they did. And I, I like that. Compar- I'll take that comparison, Mike, with George Washington. I mean, in the sense that, and this goes back to the bright spots, if we don't take the time to appreciate these really heroic things mm-hmm. that people did, and they all had feet of clay. They, you know, if we line them up according to current standards, A, they won't live as long. <laughs> George Washington dies at 67. Right. You know, their, their social arrangements will not be what we would consider to be remotely appropriate today, um, et cetera. But in their time, for their time, these were extraordinary heroes, which allows us to realize that we too will be flawed. You know, we're flawed in our time, but we can we can do meaningful things that count. That's fantastic. That's that's a recent um, realization that I've had um, about just just about everybody. Like, you know, we're all we're all complicated, <laughs> you know, like we're all complicated. So, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, so how would the Hello Girls differ from nurses in their duties? And this I found this part fascinating in your book. Um because the hello girls they 
they faced a certain situation like um once they were accepted into the AEF can you can you um speak about that yeah so here's an interesting part of this dynamic um women are not allowed to participate generally speaking for example in that era uh, if you tried to come up to me, Mike, and say, oh, hey, I, you know, I've heard about you. My name is Mike Cunha. That would be highly inappropriate. I would have to, like, you know, just turn my back on you and lift my chin and walk away because you had just insulted me as a male speaking to a female without an introduction, proper introduction. So, so this is a situation where, um, you know, all of these people are trying to figure out new roles as they go. And, um, and gosh, I just now lost that question. I got so excited. Oh, what was your question, Mike? That's <laughs> okay. That's okay. I'm actually like, you, I, I kind of lost it as well because I was like, oh my God, <laughs> I, I hope, I hope my introductory email to Dr. Cobbs was like appropriate. <laughs> oh gosh. No, no. I, no, uh, it, it's just, it's such a crazy story. That's all. It's just such a wonderful story. Yeah. So the, they were, so it, it was two and they're, they're kind of different is um, how would the hello girls differ from nurses in their duties? And um, what did, what did the women face once they were accepted into the AEF? I guess like, you know, the, the day-to-day reality of serving. Well, you see, you ask a combined question, Mike, this is what happens, but these are great questions. So the nurses, because women were not allowed to really do much in public, except in very sub- certain circumscribed roles, there was kind of a tension between the nurses and the hello girls, because, you know, there's only a certain amount of prestige or participation to go around. It's tiny. So suddenly women sometimes felt even in competition with each other. The nurses seem to particularly felt that towards the hello girls. Nurses were not, and doctors as well, were not yet regular members of the armed forces. They, they did not, you wouldn't say captain so-and-so, doctor, captain so-and-so. Um, they had a separate um, status. So Already, the Hello Girls also did not have clear ranks, but they were soldiers in the way that nurses and medical personnel were not. At the same time, the medical personnel served in really, really hardship conditions sometimes, harder than the Hello Girls in in more dangerous circumstances with field tents right up to the front so that you could on an emergency basis evacuate the wounded and treat them triage right there. And so the nurses had a real rough road. And the weird thing is that the hello girls were like, why do these nurses not like us? <laughs> I found multiple letters where the nurse, where the hello girls were like, we like them. Why don't they like us? Kind of like a mean girl phenomenon, but right. I, I don't even quite know, but it, it seemed to me partly that the nurses might've resented that, that the hello girls got so much press. It was like almost glamorous, um, you know, they were these, you know, they were serving right alongside men, doing some of the same jobs as men, getting paid the same as men, by the way. The army paid the women the same. They didn't have a structure of females earn less because, well, they had no females. And so <laughs> we're like, I guess we just pay them all the same. Yeah, it worked out so, in this case. Yeah. Yeah. So that was an interesting thing. And, and and in terms of their reception, once they were there, even though there was this some, you know, they, they got along, but there was tension between the women. Um, the men, it was very it, quite a variety of reactions, as you can imagine, just in the same way that when the armed forces were, or even baseball, you know, is 
desegregated on the basis of race. You know, some fans are fans and some fans are hostile. So in this case, um, some of the women, you know, encountered initially resistance from men. But, you know, one of the beauties of the Army is that the Army is saying, you know, suck it up. (laughs) You know, this is going to be the person who's teaching you man in the field, how to operate a phone. And she's not going to take this nonsense about, you know, now I do have to put on a skirt. And so the women, because they had the full authority of the army behind them and their superior officers who really supported the women. In fact, Pershing was in the lead. Pershing, you know, there were various accounts of uh, Pershing stopping. And so, you know, the women saluting him and the him saluting them and, you know, formal military inspections by Pershing walking down the lines of these women soldiers. In fact, by the way, Mike, one of the most beautiful things I ever saw was uncovered after my book was written, uncovered by a granddaughter of Grace Banker. And she had been trolling through the National Archives into some recently released um, film footage from World War One, And she, she sent it to me. She said, go to this link. Is, am I seeing what I think I'm seeing? And of course, I, I pull it up. I'm like, oh my God, there's grandma. There's grandma. Wow. Yes. She says, is that my grandmother? I'm saying, yes, of course it's your grandmother. Absolutely, that's Grace. And so one of the things that she found were a number of segments uh, that then do appear in the, some of them appear in this film about the Hello Girls. But there's this one segment where it shows at the end of the war. Mm-hmm. This is the Armistice. And Pershing is standing up in front of this immense crowd in France and all these American soldiers lined up in, in rows and ranks and uh, as far as you can see. And the women march out. And where do the women soldiers go? They march into the front row and that's where they are. That's where Pershing or somebody has decided that their unit goes. Man. So the crazy thing is, how can it be that when they got home, people saw them no more? They weren't seen. And yet in the war, they were seen and heard again, especially heard again and again. Sometimes men, speaking of reactions, there was one that was so touching in me. A fellow um, said, uh, oh, my gosh, that's an American woman taking my call. I mean, here's somebody who's in a bunker, you know, on the Somme River or Moose Argonne or some, you know, hellhole. And and he's like, and she says, says, whatever they, you know, whatever the protocol is. And he's like, are you a woman? Are you an American woman? And for those guys, and you know, you've studied it more than I have probably, Mike. In that moment of need, in that dark, dark time and place, to know that there's just an American woman who's with you, you know, she's not waiting back home for you to you know, come home in a box or on a train. She's there. Right there. Yeah. And it was so moving. And so they heard the women's voices all the time. And that's why, isn't it funny that the women got home and their voices were heard no more? Yeah. Yeah. Ah, very, very tragic actually yeah to to that that they come home after this huge mission and 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 they're they're almost completely forgotten so but but, but mike here's the beauty okay because that's that's the way we do this sunny side up here yep is that right they came home and they were ignored and you know the army told them to take it lying down and the women didn't and for the next 60 years they fought for military recognition and most of them were dead, 
by the time they got it. But those veterans, those veterans in their 80s and 90s, like, we're not giving up. They finally got military recognition in 1979. And that's that's just the brightest rainbow I can imagine. Yeah, seriously. Um, yeah, like just persistence and sticking with it and and like you know like like knowing what's right is is right you know like that's 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 an awesome story um so i think we we discussed like you know their reception once they reach france how did american men and women receive them um and so back home in the u.s the war was going on the the women are are the hello girls are serving near the front very close to the front in the rear areas um Back home, Woodrow Wilson's position on women's suffrage has been changing. Um, he was very much against it um, pre-war, but now the situation changes. And, and you mentioned it earlier in, in our talk, um, but can you tell us how Wilson's viewpoints changed to where he eventually came out in support of, of women's suffrage and, you know, the women's right to vote? Well, you know, remember, women only get the vote because men give it to them. There are no women in Congress to vote, right? Mm -hmm. There was one, but you know, not for most of the, not Montana. Um, so men change. It's men who change. Um, women too, of course. But every president, going back to John Adams, who had swacked down, whacked down his wife, his beloved wife, Abigail, and he, he knew, by the way, he knew, in fact, John Adams wrote in 1776, he said to another legislator, he said, be careful, sir, because depend upon it, women will ask for the vote if we're not careful. Wow. 1776. So oh. every American president up until Woodrow Wilson, and including Wilson, had opposed the vote for women if it even came across their desks. Um, and so and what happens with Wilson, there are a number of things that change his mind. Partly it's, it is the women back home who have waged this steady campaign for 50, 60, 70 years um, and who have now also helped to organize at-home mobilization for the war. You know, it's that war home front element and the major women's suffrage organizations had all been highly active in helping to mobilize women at home to darn socks and grow food and do all the things that would relieve men. So uh, Wilson's been changing his mind, but where he started was this. Remember I said women weren't even supposed to speak in public and mm -hmm. probably, you know, there might be a part of you, Mike, which thinks, oh, well, you know, but that must have been long before. Woodrow Wilson actually said that when he saw a woman speaking in public it gave him a, quote, chilled, scandalized feeling. He was just like revolted. It was, it was so unpleasant. It was so abnormal. So here's a man who just cannot wrap his mind around the idea that a normal woman, A, might speak in public, and that a normal woman might vote. You know, he thinks that it's only going to be a really weird person who would do that. But by the time the war is over, and even before the war is over, he's coming to realize that, first of all, if, the America, want, if America wants to exert any leadership on the world stage, and of course, Wilson's the first person to propose this, the first president to say, America needs to step up on the world stage. He, we can't be behind everybody else. You know, when the Germans give women the, women the vote, when the Austrians give women the vote, when the Bolsheviks in Russia give women the vote, not to mention Canada, Australia, Great Britain, you know, we look like idiots. And so the war and his own desire to help move the world in a better direction 
away from this notion that the only reason you get to exist as a country is because you can arm wrestle the next guy. You know, that there should be some reason why countries have a right to exist other than that somebody's going to put a bullet through your head if you don't allow it, because that was the way of the world going back to, you know, cavemen and women days. Right. Um, so uh, he wants to do that. And so he changes his mind. And he does give this famous speech to the U.S. Senate, which just irritates everybody, FYI. <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, one of the big irritations is that he's a Southerner. And, and everybody knows, in fact, the big holding point with women's suffrage at, by this time had become race because everybody knew that it would enfranchise black women, too. And there were many segregationist Southerners who said, well, we'll give women the vote as long as you promise us that you'll rescind the 15th Amendment. It'll only be white women. And the women's suffrage organizations again and again, not the ones in the South. There were some in the South who took that line, too. But every major organization, which were all based in the North, said, absolutely not. We will not compromise that. And it's the vote for all women. And that's ultimately what's passed. But there are a lot of fellow Southerners because Wilson was a Southerner. Right. Um, like, what are you thinking, man? <laughs> right, right, right. He, um, I believe he was actually, when he was born, he was actually born in the Confederacy. Um, you know, and then, of course, it um, collapsed. But, yeah, wow, amazing. But it's really, um, yeah, Wilson is someone that um, mm, I have to I have a lot of reservations about him, um, particularly with his uh, race relations. But, um, but, yeah, like for him to... I was impressed by that of like being able to um, to completely change his opinion to 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 shift and 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 I want to say like grow as a person, you know. So you know, I think that's that's really right. I mean, there was another uh, senator who was arguing for the women's suffrage amendment, and he said, you know, remember how we used to always feel if we saw a woman riding anything other than side saddle on a horse. And he said, and I went recently to the West, and I saw women astride a horse, a leg on either side. And I, it was hard for me to watch it. And then I realized, well, I guess I guess my eyes have got to get accustomed to this crazy thing. Now, by the way, I don't know if you've ever ridden a horse, but I tell you, if you have both legs on one side, that's a pretty dangerous way to ride a horse, you know. Um, but that idea that men grew and women grew, too, there were a lot of women who opposed women's suffrage. And, you know, it was highly... Um, Controversial. There were a lot of conservative women's groups who identified it with socialism, called it socialism. If women vote, then that's just like Bolshevik Russia winning the war, you know, you know, all this kind of nonsense. Um, but, you know, people were not accustomed to these basic liberties for women. Wow. It, it just this story continually highlights like the, the world that, that women and, and men that the, that that existed a hundred years ago of like, like I, I never knew that like, you know, my, my approaching you, you know, a hundred years ago would have, would have been like greatly insulting. Like, wow. I, you know, and I, and I've read about this time, but this is all like, I definitely need to dive into social history, but like, it's just amazing. Like how much things have changed, you know, and, and frankly for, for the, for the better, I, I, I believe on, on the most part. So um, you know, one of my favorite photographs of the Hello Girls is that they're all sitting around the table at um, be, during the Battle of Muzargan with male officers and, yes. and, and with the senior, the ranking women in the Hello Girls as well. I mean, they're literally at the Battle of Muzargan. They're at Verdun. They're in these wooden wooden shacks that the French have lent them, and and they're all 
having champagne together because it's France, you know, the, you know, it was different then. They're they're having a dinner together, and no one is scandalized. That yeah. was social progress of the first order. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah, and it doesn't like like it doesn't have to be a big deal. We're just having dinner together. It's nice. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Oh, it's wonderful. <laughs> Lucky us, we get to live today. Right, right, exactly, exactly. Like, yeah, yeah. I usually um, something I usually tell my students is like, you know, like when people talk about the good old days, like the 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 good old days are now. You know, the the you know, hundred years ago, you know, like we would have just gotten out of a world war, and you know, a hundred years before that, there was diseases and all sorts of stuff, and like, no way, like the good times are are now. So let's enjoy them. <laughs> um. So how did the AEF deploy the Hello Girls and what was their effect on AEF communications? I mean, you, you mentioned it that that a, a doughboy working an exchange could, you know, could transfer one call a minute. Uh, the Hello Girls come in and they can do five calls a minute. So um, it, any any further thoughts on that? Well, their efficacy was extraordinary. And in fact, at the end of the war, they were thanked robustly by the American military commanders in France. You know, they literally danced with Pershing. You know, there were these parties at the armistice and, you know, he's dancing with the women and everyone's celebrating together. Um, There was a beautiful book that was put together by the army officers in France and presented to each hello girl because they said many times we really couldn't have, you know, we couldn't have done this without you. Um, and I, I was also, again, touched there when I went, was doing research at the National Archives in D.C., I found a, a book on that was written up by the Army, you know, assessing at the end of the war how things went and, you know, what were the outcomes, et cetera. And uh, one of the things in the book, of, among many, including a long chapter on the women who otherwise figured in no subsequent books. <laughs> so you, you tell me why that is, Mike. So... But the, the, they had a list of the officers, those uh, who were re- given the Distinguished Service Medal uh, in the U.S. Signal Corps. And out of something like, you know, 15,000 eligible officers, something like 16 or 17 were given the DSM. And they listed it, you know, in, the, in this report to the U.S. Congress, you know, beginning with, you know, General so-and-so and then Brigadier General so-and-so and then, you know, on down the line to, you know, the various military ranks. And the last person is, it's a short list, by the way, out of the 10,000s of officers who could have conceivably won this award. Mm-hmm. At the short list at the very end, it says, Miss, Miss Grace Banker. Because the only rank for a woman was Miss or Mrs. Yeah. And so, but here she is receiving the Distinguished Service Medal, which was awarded to her, by the way, during the occupation of Germany, which, by the way, a lot of Americans are not going to remember that we did. But the U.S., of course, did occupy Germany for a time, short time after World War I. And Grace Banker was one of the first American soldiers on the ground and one of the last American soldiers to leave. The women served longer than the men on average because they were in logistics. And so the logistics people have to get there to, you know, arrange for everybody else to come over. And then they have to turn around and get all those people back home. So the hello girls were not discharged um, in, in many cases to long after the guys. In fact, the last hello girl comes home, I, I want to say at 1920. Yeah, so two years after the war is over, um, January of 1920. So this, um, you know, this kind of acknowledgement was built in, and their service was seen as very consequential at the time. 
Amazing. Amazing. Um, and they were pretty close. Like what, when they did serve, they, they were close to the front. Like you mentioned, you know, the, the photograph of, um, the hello, some of the hello girls having dinner, like in, in a, in one of those barracks buildings in, in Verdun, Verdun wasn't too far away from the Merzargon front. Um, so they, like they, they served fairly close. Yes. They did. They served as close as Pershing did. Let me put it that way. That the top-ranking American officers were also not going over the top through the barbed wire. They were not far, but they were back, mm-hmm. um, you know, within distance, shelling distance, uh, within aerial bombardment distance, but right. not within rifle distance of the front. Um, so they had to be re- literally with Pershing. That's how they got taken so close to the front is that, you know, the signal corps, uh, person in charge, said, okay, well now you're, now you're going with the general. So the, our American first army headquarters that was to, for the battle first of San Miguel. And then they moved over to which little smaller town called Sui, mm-hmm. uh, which is near Verdun. And uh, that's where they were. So, for example, one point, Grace Banker walked outside and um, shrapnel came down and just about hit her. Something exploded and shrapnel came down and her officer, her commander, was so upset with her. How dare you come out of a building without your trench helmet on? Wow. How dare you? And so he, he, she, he, she normally was getting kudos, but he was pretty mad at her that day. So on the backs of their chairs at these battles, the women had their gas masks at the ready, their trench helmets at the ready. Um, and in fact, they'd even been trained in small arms. Uh, really? In case their positions were overrun. Now, I only know this not because, I mean, again, the whole army is this giant beast that's struggling to get up on its feet because the U.S. Yeah. doesn't have a standing army. So not all of this shows up in military records, but this women were writing down what happened to them. And they're like, yes, today we went and we we practiced uh, getting gassed. You know, you go into a new chamber and you see what it's like to get gassed. And, you know, so be careful. So no, to put, you have to experience it a little bit to know how fast you have to react. Mm-hmm. So they were gassed. And then, you know, and then they were trained. Oh, today we learned how to use, you know, um, pistols uh so that because their positions could be overrun even though they were not literally you know climbing through the barbed wire right right most by the way you point out most like the mass majority of soldiers there were four million men who served in world war one 1.5 were in combat that means the great majority were not so a number of the women they were closer to paris or love you know the port cities places again where they could facilitate troop movements and and orders being you know getting where they needed to go gosh and to to bring it back to the orders all being communicated by telephone um something that i thought of was like amazing that all of those had to be communicated again like I'm, I'm imagining exactly as they were written so that there was no confusion, you know, in, in the, in the transmission. So like, wow, for, for all of that, all of those orders to be communicated, like so perfectly of exactly the way they were written, you know, to be carried out as they were meant to be carried out. Like, wow, what an amazing job uh, the hello girls did. 20, 26 million calls, 26 million calls in the course of about seven, eight months, you know, the, when the U.S. was actually in military operations, um, you know, between essentially March, April, May, and the armistice. And, um, you know, they always felt that they just held 
soldiers and troops' lives in their hands, literally in their hands. You know, they were constantly, and of course, you know, if, if any real military history nerds here knows that the charge of the Light Brigade, which was the great slaughter, you know, for the British, you know, back in uh, you know, Crimean War, that that all happens because somebody gives an order incorrectly. So right. these knew that they had to do it all right, they had to do it in seconds, and they had to be able to be bilingual in French and English at the same time, speaking in multiple two languages if necessary, because sometimes they're interfacing with French officers and even French soldiers. Wow, what what professionalism, because they're, they're having to think on the spot all day for like hours and hours and hours on end with and 26 million phone calls i mean you're getting into like <laughs> you're talking <laughs> phone calls you know seconds or every half a second or something you know statistically like that's just amazing and um wow what what incredible professionalism and it makes me understand why i think why that officer was upset because um with grace banker you know being near the shrapnel because it's like you are an irreplaceable asset, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. There's not another soldier who we can just call up from somewhere to do what you do. Yeah, no, the, the women's, that, that what they were doing was, you know, just so consequential to give you a sense of this. I was surprised, for example, again, I'm learning it. Yeah, you know, I'm doing what everybody else does. I'm like, huh, who are these people? And why don't I know about them? So one of the things I learned right away is that um, in the areas that were farther back towards the coast or towards, you know, the safer parts of France, men did the calls at night. You know, these kind of clumsier doughboys who are slower, they did them at night. I'm like, well, that's interesting. So the women, you know, women have two shifts, two eight-hour shifts, and then the guys come in overnight. And I thought, well, so I guess maybe, you know, the, the men were really important. Well, of course they were, but... But then I found out that when they got close to the front, they never allowed a man to do it. The women were on 12-hour shifts. Oh, wow. so during the Battle of Muzargan and the Battle of San Miel, it was the women did all of this, and they were on 12-hour shifts, which meant they were either always on or asleep, on or asleep, 24, you know, seven days a week for as long as the campaigns last, because their services were so essential and they didn't have enough women for them to have three hours, you know, three shifts a day. They had a small number, as you said, Grace Banker was one of six, six women who were with Pershing. Um, and so they couldn't spare any of them and they had no spare time. Uh, so it was absolutely grueling. Gosh, you know, every author is always looking for photographs to illustrate a book. And there was one picture of Grace Banker I was really hot to find, and I eventually did find. But along the way, I found some others of her that I decided not to use because there was one that uh, must have been taken. It was taken, in fact, by an Army photographer because the Army photographed its operations pretty well. Mm -hmm. uh, and this woman, Grace Banker, looked so bad. Oh, my gosh. It's like her, you know, she was in her late 20s. Her skin had broken out, but she had clear skin before. Her skin had broken out, and she looked so skinny, and her, her hair was red, and she just, her eyes were so big. And, you know, it's the picture of a soldier, you know, and, yep. you know, it's not pretty, just not pretty all the time. Yep. And um, But it, even that one photograph just led me to know in that image what it must have been like for a human body of the body of a person to persist despite everything. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Wow. 
Yeah, the 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 image you describe it, it would be the same with the men. I mean, say for the hair, it would just be shorter. But yeah, like that that gaunt look, and no doubt the breaking out and the you know the the big eyes because like you know their their bodies are consuming calories at an incredible rate through stress and everything. Yeah, wow. Um, all right, so we have um, so coming home. Um, and and I know like these uh, this first question is is, is going to kind of lead into a dark area, but it, but it's going to end in light. Um, so, how did the army treat the Hello Girls post war? We've we've already heard a little bit of that today. And um, for hopefully an upcoming conversation, um, what remains to be done today, Doctor Cobbs? Great questions. Um, well, so when the women got home, uh, they found uh, just oddly I, they didn't expect it at all. Uh, because one of the things that the U.S. Congress did immediately was to start handing out bonuses and commendations, and especially bonuses. Now, this is the 19, you know, this, this is an hardship area, era. You know, it's not the Great Depression, which will, things will get worse, but uh, still, money's scarce. Mm-hmm. And if you served um, enough tours, like Grace Bankers served essentially three six month stints. So she had three chevrons on her uniform in the end. You got a chevron for every six months you served abroad. Right. Most had none. Majority would have had one. Mm-hmm. So four to have three represents a lot. If you had three six-month stints abroad, the bonus you got was big enough to buy a brand new car, like a, a Ford, you know, a, a Model T car, which would have been pretty, you know, very few Americans owned cars. Right women found out immediately that they weren't qualified for anything. Mm. Not only were they not qualified for the bonuses because the army suddenly said, oh, well, actually, you know, you weren't soldiers. They weren't even qualified for um, disability hospitalization. And some of the women came back with, with, you know, substantial disabilities, um, mostly from disease, tuberculosis in the trenches and in that, you know, in in France was rampant. And uh, some women came back with permanent bone damage because TB could get into your bones and they could not get paid military hospitalization. So mm. they learned that right away, and uh, and they it took them a while to start fighting it, because, you know, veterans are tired. They're not, last thing they want to do is get in a war with the United States government when they're finally home. Right. Um, so it wasn't really until the 1930s that the women started saying, well, wait a minute, you know, this just doesn't make sense. And and the Army pushed back, pushed back. After World War II, when the Veterans Administration was founded, that, that they the VA pushed back, pushed back. In fact, one uh, VA official actually replied to one of these women who was really one of the top women in this whole unit. And he said, um, uh, well, he basically said, you know, it would demean the word veteran if we were to apply it to women, to these women, that the word veteran would lose some of its, I'm paraphrasing this, but he said the word name veteran would lose some, you know, status, some cachet if we were to share it. Wow. Now, by the way, some of the officers who served alongside the women also wrote Congress, also mm-hmm. wrote the PA, said, hey, you know, this is so-and-so. She served right next to me the whole time. Um, so that's what they faced. But then uh, the great thing is actually it was the second wave of the, often called the, the women's movement, the women's rights movement, where new laws did begin to get passed saying you, you can't discriminate on the basis of sex. And as a result, um, you know, these women were able to sex- successfully see it through Congress you know, with, you know, again, they're in their 90s by now. One in particular who was who was a close friend of Grace Banker, and Banker died in 1960 of breast cancer, so she was long gone. 
but Merle um, Egan Anderson was the name of this woman. And she, which, this great photograph, she's at Fort something or other in Seattle, finally getting her victory medal, which is like 60 years old now, the victory medal itself. And she said, I am, you know, I'm so thrilled. And not only for, I deserve it's not only for my service in France all those years ago, but for fighting the U.S. Army and winning. <laughs> So, so they do. um, And where do we stand today? I I just like the last thing I'd say. I mean, this whole story took on a life of its own. I wrote the book in Harvard University Press. I thought my job was done writing the book. And then somebody wanted to make it into a children's book and someone else wanted to make it into a Broadway musical and someone else wanted to make a documentary out of it. And it just kept going and going. And now the most recent thing is there's been an effort in the U.S. Congress, which once again is not listening very closely to these women's voices, um, to give them posthumously the congressional gold medal. And this is a significant, as I understand, I hope I'm remembering this correctly, the first person to receive that was George Washington. Oh, and so it's great. not, it's, it's a limited honor, but it's to people who in the military, who have given service of a sort that's really consequential and pathbreaking. Certainly these women qualify. And so both in the Senate and in the House, there are bills that have been introduced um, bipartisan bills supported by Republicans and Democrats, but not enough of them because a lot of people are looking everywhere else, but at the simple basic thing we can do, you know, for these women and also for women who serve today saying, you know, we don't, we, re- we remember where you came from mm-hmm. in the same way that male soldiers know that their history goes back to George Washington and to Valley Forge right. and to those times where, you know, not the summer soldiers, but the winter soldiers and these women, now they were the winter soldiers and and we want to honor them and that helps us it's not just them they are dead but it helps us and it, it makes us a better country which is what merle ian anderson said at the end she said i'm someone's like why are you still doing this why are you fighting this fight it's so old and she said because i love my country yes. and i want my country to be worth loving absolutely absolutely oh, fantastic wow folks the book is The Hello Girls, America's First Women Soldiers. Uh, links to it will be provided in the episode notes. Buy the book at your local bookseller, please. Um, Dr. Cobbs, what a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much for uh, for coming on the podcast. And um, before we go, um, any I, I know you have a, a recent release as well for anybody interested. Yeah, I, my, my most recent book is... Um... It's called Fearless Women, Feminist Patriots from Abigail Adams to Beyonce. And it was like my own attempt to understand how did we get here, you know, and and we if we don't understand these, what I call these rungs on the ladder of liberty, it's easy for a rung to get kicked out and for us to not really understand why that's important. You know, like education was actually the first ladder, first rung on this ladder of liberty. And so it's it's a be- I think it's a beautiful story. I mean, it's, frankly, Mike, it's even a romantic story. How do we get to the point where we go, oh, husbands and wives should love and respect one another, and they're both there for the same reasons, yep. which is that they love one another, not because one's a meal ticket and one's a domestic servant, you know, because right. right. they're equals and they're companions. So it's it's a wonderful story. It's a patriotic story, uh, as I tell it, as I think it is, and I, I hope readers will look at that too. Wow. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, Dr. Cobbs, thank you so much again for, for uh, uh, coming on the podcast. 
Well, you're welcome. I'm going to try not call you Matt. I keep saying not Mike instead of Matt, Damon. But uh, if anybody's curious, go on to the podcast, the video portion. You'll see what I'm talking about. <laughs> uh, it's, you know, it's super funny. Like, real, my, my buddy has, he's like, yeah, you kind of look like Matt Damon. And I'm like, oh, no, I don't. But like, okay. now, now it's confirmed. So confirmed. From somebody yeah. you never met 3,000 miles away. Yeah. Okay. Take care. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.